Our next speaker is James Harland. James is a, an Associate Professor in Computational Logic at the School of Computer Science and IT at RMIT, where he's known for his obsession for incorporating Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy into every aspect of the curriculum. <laughs> James. Thank you, good evening ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to talk to you tonight about two gentlemen by the name of Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman, who were probably the founders of what is now known as publicly cryptography, or in other words, the people responsible for being able to buy books on Amazon, at least in part. Now, these are two guys who probably were always were outsiders in various different ways and very much thought outside the box. And as we'll see, that was something that was some sort of uh, professional, shall we say, crazy brave decision but one I think we're all very thankful for in that sort of sense. Now, both of these gentlemen were born in the 1940s, went to university in the 1960s. Now, I don't know if there's anybody here who remembers the 1960s, but if you do, you're probably either too young or weren't really there anyway. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was a very different sort of time for today. Now, the main action in this particular story takes place, in fact, in the early 70s. But if you've ever seen a picture of Whitfield Diffie, you probably think, well, if he wasn't at Woodstock, he probably should have been is one of those classic images of long hair, long beard. People tell me, I've got a long beard. They say, you should see his, right? This sort of and he's a sort of counterculture, classic 60s hippie type who, to some extent, personified the geek of the time. This is a man who was a prodigious but rather unusual child who, at the age of 10, started reading for himself, not because he couldn't do it, but because he'd long since worked out, well, hey, mum and dad will read to me. When you're not a good thing, stick to it. Why bother? Why work harder than you have to? He was also the sort of guy who, in some extent, was a real geek's geek. The woman he eventually married, he took out on a date. Well, that's not that unusual. But what was unusual was he said to her, well, look, tell you what. Why don't we drive several hundred kilometres for many hours during the night so at 3am in the morning we can watch this launch of Skylab? You know, all of one minute, this thing blasting off. Well, they must have chosen the woman particularly well because she thought it was a fantastic idea. They had a great night and they ended up marrying each other. Not exactly your usual date, I wouldn't have thought, even for 1973. Okay. Around the same time, Martin Hellman was a Jewish professor at Stanford who had been born and bred in an Irish Catholic part of New York. In his words, this meant that he got beaten up a lot as a child and got very much used to being the outsider. Now, as any child would, he was a bit resented this and wanted to be one of the insiders, but after many years, it slowly dawned on him that being an outsider wasn't necessarily a bad thing, and it certainly was the sort of thing that he saw himself as. He went on to MIT, got a doctorate, and as one does, became a professor at Stanford, but his choice of area was actually quite interesting, because in the early 70s, to be a cryptographer was to be, well, professionally, crazy brave. The reason for that is that back then, certainly, cryptography was dominated by military organisations or government organisations like the NSA or Big Blue, IBM, the Google of its day, the big commercial company. And to be an academic working in that area was to be, well, a pawn playing with elephants. It was easy to get squashed. Moreover, what happened not once but twice to a close colleague of Hellman's was the NSA looking over his shoulder, said, you're getting too close to stuff that we want to keep secret. So twice they would raid his office, take all his papers, 
blackout everything and say, you cannot tell anybody about this stuff. You just wiped off X years of your life of professional work. So while there was no criminal risk involved, there was a real sort of Damocles saying, your professional stuff, we could just wipe it out if you get too good. So if you're okay and not, not that great, that's all right, but you get good, suddenly we'll squash you. So it was a sort of career choice that if you were in this sort of game, i.e. computing, you tended to avoid cryptography. So we have one loner, Martin Hellman, at Stanford. We have Whitfield Diffie, an itinerant cryptographer on the East Coast in New York. Now, the pivotal point in our story is September 1974. I look around, I think if it, some of you might have been born in 1974, the rest of you probably won't admit to it anyway. So anyways, way back in ancient history, 39 years or so ago, just to remind you how long ago that was, a month earlier, in August, the US President Richard Nixon had resigned and had just been pardoned by his successor, President Gerald Ford. The Australian Prime Minister is a young firebrand named Gough Whitlam, who was returned to power in the federal election in May of that year, at which time a young backbencher by the name of John Howard was first elected to Parliament, and he makes his maiden speech in September that year. Richmond are the reigning VFL Premiers. <laughs> I'm not a Richmond supporter, but I'm, why are you laughing? <laughs> They actually defend their title in the grand final that year over North Melbourne, who played in their second final, grand final ever under their then-new coach, Ron Barassi. And by the way, at this time, one Australian dollar is worth $1.30 US, believe it or not. In this month, I can't, haven't quite tracked down the date, but in this month, Whitfield Diffie gives a talk at IBM's Thomas J. Watson Research Labs in New York, as academics do. Being IBM, most of them have sort of shrugged their shoulders at this cryptographer and said, ah, oh, yeah, bit boring, okay. But one kind soul in the audience said, actually, I know one other person who was here a few months ago, a bit like you, who might be your type. And we feel different. He says, oh, yes, who's that? He said, well, there's this guy, Martin Hellman from Stanford. Now, if you're Whitfield Diffie, even back in technologically averse 1974 when there's no text, most people don't have email, you sort of think, well, how do I get in touch with someone on the other side of America 5,000 kilometres away? I could actually pick up a phone, or what we now call a landline, and call him. I could even use a more ancient technology called pen and paper, or perhaps even this modern fangled thing called a typewriter, and write to him. But I know if you're Whitfield Diffie, that very night, you pack up all you have in your car and start the road trip 5,000 kilometres to California. <laughs> As one does, or at least one did in the 70s, right? And you turn up in California, you then ring Martin Hellman and say, I'd like to speak to you. And Professor Hellman, somewhat taken aback, thinks, well, I suppose I should be alike. I guess I can allocate this person half an hour. So the next day they agree to meet with Hellman still a bit nervous about what this weird person is. First side of Whitmill Diffie may not have uh, in, in made him feel all that more comfortable. However, by midnight that night, they'd suddenly decided they were, house, they were soulmates, got in like a house on fire, and had decided that Diffie would then work for Hellman as a PhD student, because that's the only way they could continue their partnership. So if you like, Diffie bet the farm and won by saying, I want to work with this guy, spontaneous road trip. I don't know how long it takes to drive 5,000 kilometres, probably a week or more, and bet correctly. Thus began one of the um, most celebrated and certainly I think should be highly celebrated partnerships in scientific history because after two years of hard work, 
These two gentlemen, along with Ralph Merkel, another PhD student, came up with what is now known as Diffie-Hellman-Merkel-Key Exchange, which is a rather boring name for one of the greatest scientific advances of all time. Because what this overcame was what's known as a key distribution problem. What's a key distribution problem? Well, let me explain it this way. Are there any fans of Star Trek Next Generation here? Oh, yeah. A few, okay. Okay, this has got lead balloon written all over it, but anyway. Imagine Captain Bittard and Mr. Wolf. My apologies for the voices. So Picard says, Mr. Wolf, open a secure channel. And Wolf says, Yes, Captain. Sorry, very bad Klingon accent. This I can do. Yes, Captain, but how exactly do I do that? Well, Mr. Wolf, you choose a cryptography scheme, you send the key to the other party, and instruct them to encrypt all the communication with it. Uh, yes, Captain. Um, but this key, it sounds kind of important. Well, yes, of course it is, Mr. Wolf. If someone else got hold of that, our communication would not be secure. So, Captain, how exactly do I send this key to the other party? Well, Mr. Wolf, that's easy. You open a secure channel. Oh. Oops. Crap. Right there you have this circular problem. You need a secure channel to set up a secure channel. So how exactly do you do that? Well, this is a problem that had haunted cryptographers for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. <laughs> Literally. As all kind of cryptography seems go back to some poor servant who was sent from one king to another, greeted them at court cordially, and then that night was taken back in a back room somewhere, had his head shaved and read the secret message had written on the top of his head. Because you had to keep this secret somehow. So during World War II, there are code books, there are all kinds of logistical problems of sending out all this key information to thousands of soldiers in the field. By the time of our story in the 70s, we have stories of executives with padlock briefcases chained to their wrists, being sent in James Bond-like adventures to go and distribute these highly secret pieces of information so we could have these keys distributed. In a nutshell, these three solved that problem. Or if you like, came up with a set of instructions that Picard could tell the wharf to say, this is how you take an insecure channel and make it secure. Sounds like magic? No, it's just really good science. But there's more. They didn't just stop at that. If you like, if key distribution is a problem you can't avoid but you can't solve, they said, well, actually, you can solve it. The other side of the question was, well, maybe we could actually avoid it altogether. Now, this is where, if you've done any talk with security people, they start talking in this really weird way about Alice and Bob and Eve. <laughs> and Alice and Bob are trying to keep a secret to other without Eve finding out what it is. Now, if you're a fly on the wall listening to a conversation about this, you slowly start turning towards the people saying and giving these really weird looks because they start saying, well, Alice does all this stuff and send it to Bob and then Bob does all this kind of thing, but if Eve does that, then she could send it to Bob and pretend that she's Alice and... and People start looking about, are they really talking about security protocols or some other activity involving three consenting adults? But maybe I don't want to go there, right? But the rough story is this. Alice sends Bob a locked box. Bob looks at it and says, it's from Alice. It's got a lock. There's no key, no instructions, no nothing. Not really sure what to do. After a while, he thinks about it and says, look, I've got to send it back to Alice but there's no point sending it back unchanged. What I'll do is I'll put my own lock on it too. So imagine a sort of bar where you can snap on another padlock. 
he puts his own lock next to Alice's and sends it back to Alice. Alice gets the box back, being a bit smart, and Bob says, okay, I know exactly what to do. I'll take my lock off, then send it back to Bob. This probably sounds like nuts. Why send this thing back and forth three times? Well, the answer is now Bob has a locked box, but it's his lock. He's got the key. He opens it, looks at the message from Alice and says, ha ha, you suck, Bob, or whatever she wanted to say. (laughs) But the point is, neither Alice nor Bob had to secretly exchange anything. Even by using Diffie-Hellman-Merkel key exchange, they had to do some sort of exchange of information. Here, there's no such thing. This is the sort of twisted thing that Diffie and Hellman came up with to say, look, there's no key distribution necessary here. Alice could send that same box to Charlie. Charlie sends it back with his lock and Alice sends him back again. Or David or anybody. You don't have to meet first and exchange keys in any way. You can just start sending stuff. This is what's known as asymmetric key cryptography or perhaps more popularly now public key cryptography. And it's the idea that forms a basis of your encryption methods that are used for eBay or Amazon or anything else. So in some sense, Diffie and Hellman both foresaw the need for this and solved one of the major problems in providing for this. Now, there's still the slight problem of actually generating this key and lock mathematically. That was taken up by a guy named Ron Rivest, who with a couple of colleagues, Shamir and Adelman, came up with the famous RSA system about a year after reading Diffie and Hellman's paper. But I think in many ways, the whole conceptual idea or the opening up of the space was very much due to Diffie and Hellman. And it's almost like in science, you often give credit to the people who put the last little block in place and perhaps not enough credit to those who put the building blocks that go a long way before that. Well, cut a long story short, um, Diffie had a long career at Sun Microsystems and more recently with some internet naming conventions and made a, more for an unconventional person, a fairly conventional career. Hellman remained at Stanford, but he got more interested in things like the ethic of technological discovery as well as the risks of nuclear weapons and famously co-wrote a book with a Russian professor in 1987, i.e. towards the end of the Cold War, about how to neutralise the threat from nuclear weapons. Two little points to finish with, if I may. One, GCHQ, the UK's equivalent of the NSA and direct successor of the Bletchley Park Codebreakers World War II, about 20 or so years after the events I've described, quietly but firmly affirmed that three of their guys actually discovered all this, that is Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange, publicly cryptography the works, before the academics did, but being a government organisation, were not allowed to publish. And these poor three guys had to sit and watch other people discover the same things they already knew about. Or as I like to put it, sometimes the geeks beat the spooks. One example of that. The final words, I think, probably belong best to Martin Hellman, who was asked why those three of them were able to come up with something that no one else had been able to do. And what he said was this. Ralph, like us, was willing to be a fool. And the way to get to the top of the heap in terms of developing original research is to be a fool, because only fools keep trying. You have idea number one, you get excited and it flops. Then you have idea number two, you get excited and it flops. Then you have idea number 99, not sure what happened to ideas number three to 98, but let's assume they flopped too, but anyway. You get excited and it flops. Only a fool would be, would be excited by the hundredth idea but it might take 100 ideas before one really pays off. Unless you're foolish enough to be continually excited, you won't have the motivation, you won't have the energy 
to carry it through. God rewards fools. Oh, to be a tenth as foolish as Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman. Thank you for your attention, ladies and gentlemen.